0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program.
1: Intelligence security coming to your home, knocking at the door, arrest a person by force, and take that person to an unknown place.
2: He was taken by armed men and taken to a car, a red car, without a plate number and he disappeared.
3: Victims of enforced disappearances are not only those who are disappeared, but also those who suffer directly from it,
0: such as the relatives. We're going to take a look at another groundbreaking convention, one that should help families suffering one of the worst experiences imaginable, the disappearance of a loved one.
1: Hundreds of thousands of people have vanished during conflicts or periods of repression in at least 85 countries around the world.
0: The Convention on Enforced Disappearances was first drafted in 2006 and came into force in 2010. It was the result of 40 years of campaigning by the families of the disappeared and human rights groups.
1: While these sons, daughters, mothers and fathers remain unaccounted for, their families still search for answers.
0: Among them were Olivier de Frouville and Eileen Bacalso. To start our programme, let's hear from both of them about what enforced disappearance is and how it affects families. Olivier with the legal side first.
1: I'll start maybe with the legal definition, which is any form of deprivation of liberty. So an arrest, an abduction, followed by the denial of that deprivation of liberty or by the refusal to give any information about the fate or the whereabouts of the person. How does it happen most of the time, so most of the cases, there is the uh, intelligence security coming to your home, knocking at the door and presenting no particular warrant of arrest, but who request the person to come or would arrest the person by force and take that person to an unknown place.
0: Thousands of miles away in the Philippines, Eileen was experiencing this firsthand.
2: Two months after... The- we got married, I got married with my husband in uh, 1988. He was taken in one of the busy streets in Cebu City, which is the second urban center in uh, the Philippines. And he was taken by armed men and taken to a car, a red car without a plate number, and he disappeared. The whole time we were searching for him and he, was taken by these men believed to be members of the military intelligence group in Cebu City.
1: So the family, after one or two days, becomes worried and then goes to the place where they think this person is detained. And at this moment, they face a refusal to deliver an information or sometimes even a denial of the arrest of the person. So... Basically, you're facing a security officer and you you may even recognize that person for having arrested your relative. And he would say, no, we don't have that person. We don't know him.
2: They did not have any knowledge, but I knew all the while that he knew. And um, the men uh, that were present, they were all military men that were present, knew all the while where my husband was. So he was there the whole time and he was tortured and he was um, accused of being a member of uh, the Communist Party of the Philippines.
1: A military person would come to them and say, yes, we have that person, but uh, don't make too much trouble. You know, Don't file a complaint or withdraw your complaint. Otherwise, something will happen. But can you tell me where, where, where he is? He? Uh, where is he detained? No, no, I can't tell you. This is a secret issue. You have to be very careful. Don't make noise. You know, that kind of things, And then, again, silence.
2: It was terrible, especially so that we just got married. It was just exactly two months after we got married and there was no certainty of um, where he was, what happened to him and who took him. I went uh, with my parents and with uh, the relatives of my husband to the military camp every day pushing for his release.
1: So that's the situation. That's, that's why we describe also for the relatives who are victims of enforced disappearances, we describe it as torture, because this is real torture caused by uncertainty, not knowing where the person is.
0: Why is it a practice, enforced disappearance?
1: Well, you know, we don't have accurate historical study, uh, but we have some historical facts. So, for instance, we know that it wasn't called Enforced Disappearance at that time, but there was such a practice which was even codified under the Nacht und Nebel Decree, the Night and Folk Decree, which was adopted by the Nazi regime under the direction of Hitler himself. And the idea, and it's really written plainly uh, on paper, is to arrest the opponents to the Reich, take them in secret in deportation, and refused to provide any information about their fates and whereabouts. And the goal being, which is again written in a decree, to create some anxiety uh, within the occupied populations, the families, etc.
0: Half a century later in the Philippines, Eileen recognised that strategy. Her husband was eventually released, but his disappearance was, she believes, designed to keep him, his family and his community quiet
2: also message to the entire population saying you should not do any acts that are contrary to the government, any act that contradicts um, the government, um, you should not be part of the Communist Party of the Philippines, for example, you should not take activist uh, activities. So it's, it's an act, which is, I think, meant to Uh, stifle dissent, and also to to instill fear.
1: That's the practice. It's a terror practice, which is used by states, by authoritarian states, by totalitarian states, to intimidate the population and also eliminate some political opponents. And we can trace the practice, which was implemented during colonial wars, and in particular uh, in Algeria, And then we find the practice again in Latin America, where it somehow exploded, and then it spread out all over the world.
0: The campaign against enforced disappearance began to gather momentum in Latin America in the 1970s and 80s. In Chile and in Argentina, thousands of people had disappeared. Their families were desperate. A group of women, known as the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, began daily demonstrations in Buenos Aires. Where are our children, they shouted. We don't know if they are dead or alive. Are they cold? Are they hungry? Where are they? Olivier de Fruville, working for the International Federation for Human Rights at the time, took notice
1: i began to be interested in the issue of enforced disappearances and of course uh, i started meeting also with uh, with some families of enforced dis- of, uh, of uh, victims of enforced disappearances and i think it's um I, I discussed with with other people who had the same experience it's, it's very often a life-changing experience because you meet um in general those women who are Extremely courageous. They're not a born activist, so so to say. They really went into activism because of what happened to them, which is the disappearance of their son, of their husband, of another relative. So they went into this fight because they were revolted by injustice, by the silence of the state. And they also became aware that there were other people who were experiencing the same injustice in other parts of the world. And so they decided to come together and decide to uh, claim for their rights. But how could those
0: rights actually be won? The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo wanted the practice of enforced disappearance banned, banned. They wanted those who had taken their children and possibly killed them brought to justice. But what they wanted most of all was to find their loved ones, or at least to know their fate.
3: The Central Tracing Agency of the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, traces the missing and helps detainees and
0: civilians... And of course, there was already an organisation and some international law trying to find the missing and trying to protect the disappeared. Cordula Droege is chief legal officer with the International Committee of the Red Cross. The question of enforced disappearance and people going
3: missing is really at the very core of our mandate. And it's also at the core of international humanitarian law. The Geneva Conventions have so many provisions that try to prevent people from going missing. It was the Geneva Convention that set up the Central Tracing Agency on the basis of what had happened in the First World War and after to account for thousands and thousands of people who went missing on the battlefield, but also in detention settings and so on. So it's it's part of our DNA and it's very much part of our practice and what we witnessed every day. The 1977 first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, contains one of the most, I think, critical provisions that I actually really love. (laughs) I'll read it to you. And it's Article 32. It introduces the section which is about missing and dead persons. All the activities that are carried out shall be prompted mainly by the right of families to know the fate of their relatives. This is 1977, but I think it really captures all the humanity also that international humanitarian law
0: embodies. "Desaparecidos" or The Disappeared, is a theater play in Manila that aims to remind young Filipinos of the horrors of the recent past. But Eileen Bacalso, after experiencing firsthand the anguish of the disappearance of her husband, had become involved in the campaign. This was not an isolated crime, but a violation taking place on a global scale. She, like the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, became convinced a new international law was needed.
2: Enforced disappearance is a crime against the individual. It's a crime against the family. It's a crime against the community. It's a crime against society. It's one of the cruelest forms of human rights violations. Because um, while it is true that, for example, extrajudicial execution or killing is also a very cruel form of human rights violation, but families of the victims see the body and there's closure. For families of the disappeared, they don't have any certainty of where their loved ones are. If these people who disappeared are dead, where are they? And who killed them? Why were they killed? This is a crime which is um, it's also a crime against humanity, especially when committed uh, in a systematic uh, and massive uh, manner. And these are happening in more than 90 countries of the world. So it's a global problem. It's a national problem. It's a regional problem in all regions of the world. And it's a global problem.
0: And Cordula Droga remembers the ICRC joined the call for a new convention outlawing enforced disappearances.
3: Now, why was this convention so important is because there was a gap in international law. You had um, these provisions of the Geneva Conventions and protocols for armed conflict, but you had no universal treaty that prohibited enforced disappearance as such. And that matters because of course enforced disappearance can also be seen as an act that violates many other prohibitions, such as the prohibition of arbitrary detention, the prohibition of torture, the prohibition of extrajudicial killing. But none of those captures this specific plight that enforced disappearance causes not only for the direct victim, but also for the for the relatives. And so there was something deeply symbolic also to prohibit this particular act in all its specificity and also, and I think this is a great achievement that the convention then managed to to get, to recognise that victims of enforced disappearances are not only those who are disappeared,
0: but also those who suffer directly from it, such as the relatives. And so, in 2006, the Convention on Enforced Disappearances was drafted. In 2010, it was ratified, making it international law. Excellencies, distinguished delegates, High Commissioner, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. It is my pleasure to declare open... That the means, of course, session. there is a United Nations committee to keep of track of countries' records upholding the convention. Olivier de Frouville is now vice-chair of the committee, One of the most important tasks, he says, is to intervene on individual cases of the disappeared, known as urgent cases.
1: To be reactive to urgent information that come to us of people who have been victim of enforced disappearances or who are being threatened from enforced disappearances. That's what we call the urgent action procedure. So we receive an information that somebody has disappeared, And we can intervene within 48 hours to ask the state to take steps to localize the person, basically, to find the person, where the person is. And that proves, in general, really helpful because um, we know that it's sometimes really a question of of hours. When somebody has disappeared, very often the practice is that that person is taken into secret detention, is being submitted to torture. And so might be at risk of dying because of torture and is sometimes after having been tortured, eliminated, physically executed. So it's really a question of of, of time, a question of hours, sometimes of days.
0: And states who know that you know, that's a, a preventative factor, then, you think?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It It's... Um, it's a general rule that if, if you say that if you say to a state that the UN the United Nations knows that somebody has been arrested, it may have a preventive factor. I wouldn't say it's hundred percent sure. Okay, the si- situations uh, where we are facing enforced disappearances are very difficult situations, and we are very, we're in general, facing governments, parts of the the security apparatus which are not always very interested in knowing about what the UN has to say on them. So uh, I wouldn't say that the deterrent effect is always there, but it's certainly we raise concern. And at least in some part of the government, there is a concern. We certainly know that, for instance, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is always very keen to defend their image outside. So they want to respond. They try to reach out to security apparatus. They try to get the information. So at least part of the states are very sensitive to that kind of pressure.
0: You're reviewing, uh, the committee is reviewing countries at the moment. Um, and one of them is actually Switzerland, which we might think, huh? you know, with the enforced disappearances kind of happens in other places. So what, what, what's the relevance of, of reviewing a country like Switzerland?
1: So the, the, the convention is open to ratification to all states. And of course, not all states have known the phenomenon of enforced disappearances. And, and this is very fortunate, of course. But the interest first for a state to ratify the convention is to participate to the global fight against the phenomenon of enforced disappearances. Through judicial cooperation with other states, through the prosecution of perpetrators of enforced disappearances, including by using universal uh, jurisdiction. That is to say, by arresting people who don't have Swiss nationality, who have not committed their crime in, on the territory of Switzerland, and not against victims of Swiss nationality. These are crimes that are committed in another country, but Switzerland, under the Convention, is able to recognise its competence to prosecute such uh, the perpetrators of such enforced disappearances. So that's the first, I think, uh, central thing that we can ask from a state such as Switzerland.
0: Meanwhile, the ICRC, says Cordula Droga, is supporting the convention by continuing its tireless work on behalf of the missing and the detained in general. Amongst all the people who go missing, and who the ICRC,
3: through its Central Tracing Agency, is trying to find, there is a large volume of people who presumably have been forcibly disappeared. And the ICRC, of course, tries to to do several things about this. The rules on prisoners of war, civilian detainees, these are rules about detention, and they are about registering people, holding people in official places of detentions, allowing visits, 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 access, contact with the family. So all of these things are ultimately, when it comes to detention, very much also to prevent enforced disappearances. So while the ICRC very often talks very broadly about missing persons, we are very conscious of the fact that a large part of this are presumed enforced disappearances, and we try to prevent those very much. And I would say that that was perhaps what the ICRC tried to bring most into this convention was a lot of detail on what could be done to prevent enforced disappearances.
0: Can I just ask you, though, when you're trying to find somebody who's missing, there must really be, for the ICRC, a very big difference between working with authorities in a country where there's been a conflict and people are missing, and working with authorities in a country where enforced disappearance is happening. I know in, in Syria, the ICRC has asked repeatedly for access to thousands of detainees. And As far as I understand it, you do not very regularly get a positive response.
3: Yes, that's correct. And that's something that we continue trying to have access to those detainees who we don't have access to, so not just the common law uh, detainees, but but the security detainees, and that's the case in Syria, but also in other places. So yes, there, there is a difference, because you need to have access to detention places, that's the first thing. You also need to have access and build a relationship with the decision makers. You need to identify patterns, because enforced disappearance is likely to be part of a pattern, of a trend, It's a very politically sensitive issue. It starts with, yeah, it starts with trying to get access to the places, to identify the places which are places of particular risk for people, to have the dialogue with the authorities to
0: prevent this. Nevertheless, Olivier de Fruville believes it's vital to make the distinction between the missing and the enforced disappeared. Both cases need resolution, but one is a crime and needs accountability too.
1: The category of the missing, which was um, introduced by international humanitarian law, is, is of course a broader category than enforced disappearances. So it includes enforced disappearances. Missing is, a, is everyone whose fate is uncertain, basically. You haven't received any news for whatever reason. So it may be that the, the person has been abducted, But it also may be that the person has disappeared in the circumstances of a natural catastrophe or has had an accident I know cannot be found or also in situations, of course, of armed conflict where combatants may be missing on the field. It includes enforced disappearances, but it's not necessarily the same issue. So when you're finding, for instance, someone who's been lost in a natural catastrophe, who has been missing in the field or being detained somewhere in a, in, a, in a military camp after the war, it's a complete different issue than trying to find someone who's been abducted by security forces, tortured, and afterwards executed, and whose bodies and remains are, are hidden. In one case, it may be the, the fact that you don't find the person for, for various circumstances, because it's just difficult. The circumstances are diff- make it difficult to find the person. And in another case, it's a crime. So basically, the person has been the victim of a crime which should be prosecuted and and which is completely different. We, of course, have a humanitarian issue, which is, you know, to comfort the family and try to bring some news to the family. But we also have a criminal issue because that person has been the victim of a crime. And that involves a number of issues in terms of justice, finding the truth, investigating the crime. For instance, if you find the the remains, of course you will not limit yourself to identifying the remains. You will also proceed to a a forensic investigation. So it's a complete different process.
0: So what does Eileen Bacalso think? She too has remained active on behalf of the disappeared. She's now president of the International Coalition Against Enforced Disappearances.
2: It's a consolation for the families of the victims. It's actually some kind of uh, not just a legal victory, but um, moral victory because it's a recognition of, um, of the important issue of enforced disappearance and um, the global problem of enforced disappearance. That's very important. Um, what is also important is the need for information dissemination of the existence of the convention and how the families of the disappeared could make use of this, but unfortunately, realistically speaking, many families of the disappeared don't know about the existence of the convention, and in uh, what way can they be can they access to that?
0: So while there is a convention, Eileen fears it's not as widely known as it needs to be, and neither is it widely supported. Only 62 countries have ratified it, far fewer than the Convention Against Torture, with 170. Why the reluctance? Cordula Droga again. Some countries might feel, well, enforced
3: disappearance isn't really our problem, and so it's not high on our agenda. On missing persons and enforced disappearance, I think there is also perhaps a gendered dimension to this issue, because very often those who advocate for the families, the families associations you might have noticed are often women. So just symbolically, if you just take the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, the grandmothers of Plaza Mayo, the mothers of Srebrenica, it's seen as, I think, an emotional issue as well. And it is an emotional issue. But there's a dissonance, here, I think, between, you know, the discourse of international security, military solutions, counterterrorism, And these women advocating for something that is deeply human but is perhaps seen as emotional
0: now that's a bit depressing to hear you say that
3: i'm not saying you know it's not only women that are looking for their loved ones of course there are also men and there are also important men who advocate for this issue but i do think there is a gender dimension to it but what would we say to states i mean i think we need to continue encouraging states And I think we have to tell them there's a principled reason to accede to the convention, which is that there is normative value in putting opprobrium and stigmatization on this particular crime and recognizing for what it is. And all states should do that, even if they don't feel themselves concerned. And another practical reason, which is perhaps even more depressing than what I said before, is that you never know what the future holds. And so I think it is good <laughs> to ratify these conventions which, which provide, you know,
0: a safety net when things go wrong. On that slightly ominous note, we've almost reached the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. But I still want to give the last words to Olivier and to Eileen to hear from them why this convention really must be supported by all countries. Well,
1: I think that by universal ratification, we can put an end. To enforce disappearances. I mean, think that, that's the major issue. Um, Enforced disappearance is a strategy, it's a practice by mostly security apparatus around the world, which is taught, which is transmitted to to fight illegally against armed groups, against opponents, etc. And if we come to universal ratification, we can really outlaw that practice, including through security apparatus, by making sure that all perpetrators, wherever they are, are prosecuted and that the right to the truth is guaranteed to the victims. So that's why I find it so important that everybody joins the club because we really need everybody around the table to eradicate that practice. And I think this is possible.
2: The families of the disappeared in Latin America first conceived uh, the need for a convention 40 years ago when they formed uh, the Latin American Federation of Associations of Relatives of Disappeared Detainees. They dreamed about the convention. 30 years later, it was uh, made into a reality and that was a big moral and political victory for families of the disappeared. So we don't want any family to suffer from the consequences of enforced disappearance. And we don't want any person to be disappeared because every person has the right to live. And it's a violation of the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to a family, the right to a job, the right to community. So it's about time for governments, for states to ratify the convention now.
0: that's it from Inside Geneva for this week. My thanks to Cordula Droga of the ICRC, Olivier de Fruville of the UN Committee on Enforced Disappearances, and Eileen Bacalso, President of the International Coalition Against Enforced Disappearances. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swissinfo. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, Including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year, we explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to a look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening.
3: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, Satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.